Hi, welcome to St. Luke's U, where you become a disciple. I am John Gross, and today I'm going to be talking with you all about the Gospel of John. As you may notice from the lovely background behind me, I am not in the same recording studio that I'm usually in. As it turns out, my family and I have just moved across the country so that I can start a new pastoral residency position in the Denver, Colorado area. So right now I'm actually in the backyard of, get this, an Airbnb. We have a phenomenal housing option, which as happens with these major life upheavals is uh, not immediately available. So we're spending a month in this lovely little place but I'm very excited that I'm still perfectly able to go ahead and record all of these lectures for you. Another thing that I'm very excited to share with y'all is that between the time of recording the previous lecture and recording this one, I successfully finished my dissertation defense. So now I am Dr. Gross, which is a fun thing to throw around until I realize that if I'm on an airplane and someone says, hey, is there a doctor we need help? The only kind of emergency I'm going to be helpful with is like if someone is down to the wire on a conference or article abstract and they really need someone to prove it at the last second. That's really the emergency I'm going to be useful for. I suppose also if someone definitely is dying and they need last rites or something like that, I guess that's the kind of emergency uh, that as a, as a doctor in New Testament studies I could be helpful with. But, you know. I'm, it, it's like Ross and friends where he says, I'm a doctor. And then everyone tells him Shh, that actually means something here. Anyway, so that's where I'm at. But I can now call myself Dr. Gross. Still excited about that. And I'm very excited to jump into the gospel of John with all of you today. So I have my handy dandy PowerPoint moving. And as you may recall from last week, today's series is called the gospel of John. The gospel according to John. Meeting Jesus in a Divided World. Sorry, not sorry that the letters are just so crazy. So today's lecture is called Outsiders Inside. And what I want to share with you today is how the insiders, the people within the community of Christians to whom the Gospel of John was written, it is a big part of their personal history that they were once outsiders. And in fact, a critical part of becoming an insider, becoming someone inside this early Christian community is having been an outsider with respect to the Jewish community that these Christians were probably born into before they started to become Christ followers. And I think it's going to be really important for us to take a look at how this early Christian community was composed of outsiders because it is so easy for all of us in our church lives to make our churches insiders places. So here's a quotation from, I think it was a, a podcast discussion by Michael Horton, who's a, a fairly conservative reformed theologian, but he observed that in today's media environment, he has to really challenge other pastors, elders, people in positions of church leadership, because when you go into a church, you can very often tell, is this a Fox News church? Is this a CNN church? And the fact that we can very often tell 
which type of church that we're going into is a symptom of a larger problem. And that's this line over here in the middle where it says, it's not the gospel that people care about the most, it's the ideology. And I would say you can have Fox News churches or CNN churches where people care more about the gospel than the ideology. But the fact that you can tell the difference very clearly suggests that maybe the politics can be a little bit too important to the overall life and flavor of a particular church. And so a quest that a lot of church leaders and uh, scholars have to be on is trying to figure out how to get back to the gospel, that core that should unite all people who have faith in Jesus. This whole idea of a Fox News church versus a CNN church, it resonates a lot with me because the church that I grew up in, it really did fall into one of those categories. And it was an absolutely wonderful church. And I think they really did put the gospel front and center. I think that to be an insider within that particular church community, that was something determined by a person's level of commitment to Jesus. And so I think they had the main thing, the main thing. But if you really wanted to be an insider, then, you know, maybe being in that same narrow segment of the political spectrum as everybody else was really helpful. If you really wanted to be an insider in that church, it of course always helped. If you were in the area called the Hill, this particular church was in the Palos Verdes area, which if you're not familiar with Los Angeles geography, the Palos Verdes Peninsula is a really, really nice place uh, that has some of the most opulent homes in Los Angeles County area. And the church was sort of uh, located on the way up that hill. And obviously, if you lived on the hill, it made you a little bit more of an insider. And I don't say all of that really to criticize the church, but to point out something that our church life can be one that emphasizes, that multiplies, that adds potency to the kinds of categorizations that people get sorted to in everyday life. And it's something that happens so naturally, so almost inevitably, it becomes difficult not to get really cynical and just to accept it as it is. But it's a reality that we see all over the place. And I don't think anything really kind of shows that uh, tendency of church to multiply existing societal dividing lines, quite like looking at overall statistics about the racial composition of American churches. One of the chilling realities about American Christianity is that this quotation from Martin Luther King circa, I think it was March 31st, 1968, just a few days before his assassination. This quotation really does still to this day hold a lot of truth. Uh, so preaching his last Sunday sermon, Martin Luther King observed, we must face the sad fact that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, in Christ there is no East or West, we stand in the most segregated hour of America. And there's a lot of really dramatic and complicated church history that 
funds this particular issue, but it's still an ongoing problem. And it's one where things are getting a little bit better. So this is a figure from an article that looks at a handful of national congregational studies from 1998 to 2019. And you'll notice in these graphs that the percentage of congregations that are 100% either white or black has been significantly declining since 1998. So over 20 years, we've seen a significant decrease in churches that are 100% white and a little bit of a decrease in uh, congregations where the attendees are 100% black in the church. But one of the realities that remains is that we do not have a lot of churches that are truly multi-ethnic. So a multi-ethnic or multi-racial congregation for the purpose of this study is defined as a congregation where no single ethnicity constitutes more than 80% of a church body. And you'll notice that among varying Christian traditions that Catholic churches in 2012 seem to be doing the best in this regard, and that only 75% of Catholic congregations in 2012 were 80% or more the same ethnicity. And one of the issues that we see is that these dividing lines of race have ways of filtering their ways into our churches. And as much as we all want all of our churches to be able to match the cultural and racial and age demographic as the cities in which they exist, as much as we want that eschatological reality of every uh, family and language and people and nation being represented by the church, individual congregations have a really, really difficult time matching that vision. And it's because churches tend to be places where existing societal demands tend to get emphasized or multiplied, and they're not always taken apart. Counter to all of this, the gospel according to John presupposes that to be a follower of Jesus means that you're going to be an outsider in some capacity. And that runs counter to the tendency that we see in our churches today, where being an insider, being a favored person in your broader cultural community suddenly is exactly what it means to be an insider within a church community. What the community to whom the fourth gospel was written has experienced is one of ostracization because of their con profession, their confession of a faith in Jesus. And so what we find in the gospel of John is some of the storytelling and some of the words of Jesus, they are addressed to insiders within the Johannine community, within the followers of Jesus, but they are outsiders with respect to other communities. And so today I want us to take a look at the story in John 9, which is the healing of a man born blind. And what we're going to see in this story is that as this person becomes an insider. He becomes a believer in Jesus. He becomes folded into the community of Jesus' followers. Along the way towards becoming that type of insider, he has to become an outsider with respect to the Jewish community. 
And what I'm going to show is how we can actually read that as not just a story of what happened with this encounter between Jesus and an individual, but actually a mirror reflecting the broader situation and the personal experiences of the community to which the fourth gospel was written. One of the interpretive points about the gospel according to John that many scholars agree on is that the farewell discourse, which we're going to talk about in more detail next week, that is the words of Jesus to his followers in chapters 13 through 16, these words are not just retelling the night of Maundy Thursday before Jesus's crucifixion, but these are words that are recorded and written down to address the experience of the community that the author of the fourth gospel was trying to minister to. And so these red letter words in chapters 14 through 16 of John, it's not just, oh, this is something that John himself remembered and then told the community about, and then someone wrote it down. Uh, these are intended to be experienced as the words of the risen Lord to that particular community in the time that they were hearing this gospel be read. So what we have in John chapters 14 through 16 is not just something that Jesus told his disciples, but something that is meant for Jesus's followers now. And one of the things that we have in that farewell discourse is this kind of purpose statement at the beginning of John chapter 16, where Jesus is explaining why he says all these things. And he says, I've told you all this so that you won't, will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. And so what Jesus is talking about at the beginning of John chapter 16 is this experience of Jewish Christian persecution. And so in 16.1, where Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogue, that sort of prediction is something that the initial readers and hearers of the Gospel of John would have already seen happen in their lives. So they would kind of nod their heads along with the speech of Jesus being, yes, yes. That's right. Jesus's followers would get put out of the synagogue because that is something that we have experienced. And so this farewell discourse, addressing people kicked out of the synagogue, that has then become a lens for reading some of the other stories in the Gospel of John. Because if the words of Jesus in chapters 14 through 16 are addressed to a community that has been ostracized from its community, um, then chances are that other stories in the Gospel of John are also being told in a particular way so that they could bless the community that has been shunned or put out from the Jewish community that it once was familiar with. One thing that I think shows how the story of the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9 is not just a story of Jesus' encounter with an individual, but is also kind of a roadmap for how Jesus can attend to and work with people in the Johannine community facing persecution is a little bit of a mismatch between 
the story itself as we have it in the gospel and other healing stories that we see throughout the gospels. So usually these healing stories have three parts, a description of the sickness, then you have a healing event and then a confirmation of the healing. And so what I have in those boxes there, the top bullet point in each one is just an outline of how this three part story goes in a healing that takes place in Mark chapter seven. I could have chosen any number of healing stories and really any of the gospels because they tend to follow this kind of template. But one of the things that you'll notice is if you follow this template for John chapter nine, you have the description of the sickness. This man was born blind and everyone kind of knew who he was as a beggar. That's verses one through five of John chapter nine. Then uh, in nine, six through seven, Jesus heals him with spit and mud, nine, eight through 10, People like, wait, this is the beggar that we've seen before and he can see now? Wait, what's going on? But this healing moment only gets you verses 1 through 10 of the story of the healing of the man born blind. His actual story constitutes 41 verses. What happens after this healing event is a series of discourses between Jesus and the man born blind and the parents of the man born blind and the Pharisees. And so what happens is this singular kind of healing event then becomes the jumping off point for a larger discourse. And so one of the kind of watershed moments in uh, recent Johannine scholarship was the work of Lou Martin, who discovered a method of reading the Gospel of John as a two-layer drama, where on the one hand, we have uh, one layer or one level that is a telling of a story in the Jesus tradition. That's just a telling of a story that people recall from the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's one level of it. But another level is this ministering to a community whose experience has kind of matched up with this early Jesus story. In the previous slide, you could see how the three-part template that works for a standard miracle story in the Gospels doesn't really get you the full distance with this particular event in John chapter 9. That three-part story of the description of the sickness, the healing event, and the confirmation of the healing event. That only gets you through the beginning. But another three-part template that actually encompasses the entirety of what we have going on in John chapter 9 is a different three-part template. It's one where someone has an encounter with Jesus and begins to believe in who Jesus is, but then their belief in Jesus is investigated. There's a dispute about it. Uh, there's some cross-examination, some questioning, some sniffing out this person who started to believe in Jesus. And then that believer then is expelled and pressed outside. And that three-part story fits the story of the, uh, the man born blind very well, but it also fits what is very likely to have been the personal experience of many people in the early Jesus community. One of the features of this story 
that implies that it's not just trying to retell this story of a cool healing moment, but it's also trying to minister to a congregation that has experienced the pain of being weeded out and expelled from a synagogue. One of the sort of clues that that's what this story is built for is in 922. So around 920, we have this conversation between the Pharisees who are investigating, who have already decided they don't like Jesus at this point in the Gospel of John and are investigating the people who believe in him. They bring in the parents of the man born blind. And the parents kind of have these non-committal interactions with the Pharisees. They say, yes, we know he is our son. We know he was born blind, but... Uh, we don't know anything about this Jesus person because they don't want to get aligned with Jesus. And the reason they don't want to get aligned with Jesus is because they're afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. And so one layer of drama in John chapter nine is this sort of ominous possibility of being cast out of the synagogue, that possibility of being kicked out sort of casts a pall over this whole story. And the fact that that particular issue is the sort of, it, that's what's at stake. That's the sort of threat that these characters are dealing with um, that matches up with the personal experience of early Jewish Christians who became the initial members of the Johannine community. So we can step back to those three pieces, the encounter with Jesus, the investigation, and then becoming an outsider. Those Three steps are the steps that we see in the healing of the man born blind, but we also see in the experience of the people who were once part of the Jewish community, who then become Christ followers and who are then expelled from that community. And so in that middle column where I have that investigation, where the Pharisees are investigating the man and his parents, that parallels this thing that I've labeled an awkward refusal to join a prayer against heretics. Well, uh, New Testament scholars have discovered in a collection of benedictions, uh, a benediction that is really more like a curse. It's a curse against uh, people who are committed to Jesus. And so um, it's this uh, 12th benediction for the apostates. Let there be no hope. Let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the Nazarenes and the Mimim, that is the heretics, be destroyed in a moment and let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the proud. And so this benediction, which uh, really is more of a curse, uh, what some scholars have kind of reconstructed as the lived experience of the community of Jesus followers that John was writing to is something kind of like this. They were once participants in the Jewish synagogue and they would join the Christian community. And one of the things that could happen once they start to believe that Jesus might actually be the long awaited Messiah is they would join the kinds of prayers and liturgy that are part of the synagogue. But then they would get to something that sounds a little bit like this 12th benediction, something that sounds a little bit like the curse against the Nazarenes, the Minim, and they might suddenly get quiet at that part. And so you would have these little refusals to participate 
in certain parts of the liturgy that would then uh, promote or prompt some kind of investigation. And so what is quite possibly going on with John chapter 9 is that this investigation where the Pharisees are investigating the man born blind and investigating his parents, that kind of lines up with the investigation that would begin whenever someone got curiously quiet around this benediction, or I guess you could call it the curse against the heretics. The dramatic tension taking place in the story of the healing of the man born blind occurs on two levels. The one level is on the event during Jesus's earthly ministry. And the second level is the current work of the risen Christ in the congregation. And so all the drama, all the tension, the joy of being blind and then seeing, but then also the calamitous fallout that happens from that, that's both an event that would have taken place during Jesus's earthly ministry and a type of event that Jesus's earliest followers, or at least those to which the Gospel of John was written, would have experienced. And this two-layer drama, on the one hand, presenting what Jesus was saying to his early disciples, his early followers, but then also what the risen Lord is saying to the Gospel of John's current readership, that goes throughout the gospel. And one of the places we see it pretty clearly, again, it's that farewell discourse. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so what we have going on here is if the world hates the disciples of Jesus, if the world hates the Jesus followers, the people who remember the risen Jesus, keep in mind that it hated first the Jesus who lived and breathed on earth. At the end of this passage, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, so if Jesus suffered during those events of his earthly ministry, then that suffering might recur later on in the life of Jesus's followers. And what this kind of discussion, what this kind of logic presupposes is that to be an insider within the community of Jesus followers is to be an outsider with respect to some other communities. One of the really fascinating things that's also going on in this story of the healing of the man born blind is this kind of inverted insider-outsider dynamic where the insiders of the Christian community are the outsiders of the Jewish community. We have that going on with this kind of ironic uh, dynamic where it's the blind person, or the man born blind anyway, who sees the most clearly in this story. And it's the people who are doubting his story who actually have trouble seeing. And what's really fascinating is to catch the ways in which uh, blindness or an inability to see is actually cast onto other characters in this narrative in John chapter nine. And it's a little bit subtle, but it's less subtle at the end of the story. So I'm gonna show that to you really quick here. Um, so in verses 8 through 10, this is right after Jesus puts the mud on the blind man's eyes um, and, and he starts to see the neighbors who were around the blind man uh, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was and others said, no, he only looks like him. 
but he himself insisted, I am the man. And so what's really fascinating is there's, in verses 8 through 10, there's this moment of unclarity about the healing of the man born blind. The man who had been born blind, he is the one who sees the situation clearly. He's like, no, I had this experience. Jesus healed me. I'm the guy. And the people who are a little bit confused about it, they're the ones who can't recognize his face. They're the ones who can't see clearly. And then that whole uh, ironic thing going on in the story, that whole theme of uh, blindness and sight that gets wrapped together at the end of the chapter when um, the blind man has his conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees are around and um, the man tells Jesus, he has his full confession of faith. He says, Lord, I believe, worships Jesus. And Jesus says, for judgment, I've come into this world. And here's that kind of irony going on. Jesus makes it a little bit more explicit here at the end of the chapter so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And so there's this irony that's going on on a couple different levels. In this story, everyone has trouble seeing except for the person who was born blind. And then we kind of have this irony going on in another layer where the person who is getting kicked out of the synagogue for his profession of faith in Jesus then becomes the ideal believer by the end of the story. That outsider becomes a new insider for the Christian community. And kind of sealing the deal on this irony, the Pharisees who were around the man born blind, uh, they heard Jesus say this declaration and says, what, are we blind too? And Jesus effectively says, yes. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but because you claim to see your guilt remains. And this is a really fascinating way to end the chapter because at the very beginning of the chapter, um, Jesus was having this conversation with the disciples where uh, Jesus' disciples thought the man born blind must have been a sinner because there's no explanation for how this person could have been born with this disability. They thought, well, uh, you know, maybe this person somehow sinned prenatally or that the parents had sinned and they were given a blind child as a sort of recompense for that. And Jesus says, no, um, being born blind is not a sin. The fascinating thing at the end of this chapter, though, is thinking you have it all figured out, claiming you can see while still being blind to what Jesus is doing. That is the part that is sinful. And so we have this fascinating thing going on in John chapter 9, where to be an insider within the Christian community is also to be an outsider with respect to the authoritative religious community. And so I want to kind of close with a little bit of a reflection on how that can pertain to where we are in our kind of divided cultural landscape. So what I've tried to put a spotlight on in this lecture is a contrast between the situation of the early Jesus community and a struggle that a lot of churches have today. On the one hand, the early Jesus community was composed of believers who on their way to becoming inside of the Jesus community had to become outside of another community. So 
the inside of that community was made up of outsiders. And that contrasts with a struggle that we tend to see in churches today, where whatever it means to be an insider in a larger cultural sense also becomes what it means to be an insider within a church. So the big question then is what can we take from this story of the man born blind to challenge ourselves to move in a direction towards not replicating those boundaries that exist in the in the rest of society towards becoming a church that can have outsiders inside well one thing that i've picked up on from the story that is really fascinating is the simplicity of the confession of faith of the man born blind so 924 through 27 which i've just put on the screen right here this is the part where the man born blind is being cross-examined by the Pharisees. So this is after his parents kind of dodge the question. And so the Pharisees are talking to the man born blind and they say, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And the man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. What I found really fascinating about this is how this man born blind who has this profound experience with Jesus uh, who is met in the arena of his blindness, but then comes out the other side seeing he doesn't claim to know all the answers. He says, I, I don't know Jesus's personal history. I don't have it all figured out. The thing that I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. And so they cross-examine that. What did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? And the man answers, I told you already, and you don't listen. Do you want to become his disciples too? And then, of course, they get really mad at him from that point. But, you know, this this man, this outsider who becomes the insider, he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have it all figured out. He just says, I was blind, but now I see. He just says, I had an experience with this Jesus. And uh, he gives a reason for the hope that he has that is simply his own personal experience. He's not trying to solve major complex social issues. He's not trying to figure out all of theology. He's just talking about his personal experience. And I wonder how much easier it would be for all of us to maybe bring down the heat of our cultural divides if we were, if we could be more committed to just saying, well, this is the experience I have had with Jesus. And to simply leave it at that and not have to figure out the rest of it. Uh, one of the things that happens in this story is, is the Pharisees kind of become a, uh, a negative example. They become the ones who are uh, trying to reinforce the religious boundaries in the story. And uh, at the end of the chapter, the kind of mic drop on them is that they're blind because they claim to see. And so I think if there's anything in this story that can tell us the difference between uh, being ready to have outsiders inside and being a place that's reinforcing existing boundaries. It's uh, this question of uh, what are we sure of? Uh, where are we claiming to have all the answers? I think if we have our confidence in our experience with Jesus, that might be something different than claiming to have it all figured out. And that's something that I've been able to pull from this particular story about how we could begin to address all of these issues of broader cultural divides that we have. Now, I realize that's only a beginning. 
that's just the start of it. But, you know, what's going on in John chapter nine is it's, it's a story designed to comfort a group of Christians who feel like they are outsiders. And, you know, it's not going to give us the material to resolve all of these problems, but I think it's going to give us a beginning towards that. And so how do we live then in a community that on a day-to-day basis kind of starts to look for unity and to overcome all these divides? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're actually going to dive into the farewell discourse in a little bit more detail, and we'll have a chance to talk more at length about the unity of the church. But what I hope that you can see from this story is that for all of the ways in which churches can become places where what it means to be an insider culturally is what it means to be an insider in the church, uh, we can be challenged to try to make our churches the kinds of places where we can have outsiders be inside.